Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. We get it going on a Thursday with Mike Puma of the New York Post covering the New York Mets. The recently concluded Subway Series, Mike, how much stock do you place in that? Is it just more important to the New York City crowd, or do you think it's bigger than that? Uh, I, you know, I think it's more a New York thing than anything else. And the Mets, you know, as far as bragging rights go, the Mets have won two games last month at City Field. They lost uh, two games against the Yankees this week. So, you know, it's something something the New York fans get revved up about. The Yankees fans and Mets fans get to yell at each other for a few games. But, uh, you know, in the grand scope of things, uh, they were just games the Yankees really needed to win to to get off their skin. Uh, You know, the Mets... uh, could have, could have used uh, at least one win there. The Braves are uh, closing fast on them. When the series before the series began, it seemed that Max Scherzer and Jacob Degrom were going to be the starters. I don't know what happened to change those plans, but Scherzer's been having a terrific year. He probably had his worst outing, uh, striking out his uh, season low three in one game and took the loss, including giving up a home run to Aaron Judge. Uh, was there any particular? clandestine reason why DeGrom didn't start on Sunday? Well, originally they were lined up with Scherzer and DeGrom back-to-back. Uh, with, with DeGrom would have pitched Tuesday. Taiwan Walker last week uh, had some lower back discomfort that forced them to push him back in the rotation. Buck Showalter's reasoning was that Walker was ready to return to pitch, and he thought... It would be uh, it wouldn't be wise to, to to let him wait more than a week to return to the rotation because they had the Wednesday yesterday off, so he wanted to slot Taiwan Walker back in there, and that pushed uh, Degrom to today. You look at this Mets team, uh, considering how well they've been playing, they dropped three of their last four, and the lead has now been reduced to a game and a half over the Braves. Uh, see, I don't go by that. I go by the loss differential. And they have a two-game lead in the loss column, which I think those are the games you can't replace, as you well know. The Braves yesterday outscored Pittsburgh, I think, two touchdowns to a safety. <laughs> I mean... The, <laughs> well, the, the good news for the Mets is they'll get to play those same Pirates in September twice. They've got a home-and-home home coming up uh, 
beginning of Labor Day in Pittsburgh, a three-game series, and the Pirates come back to New York. So what the Mets are really looking at here is they, they played the Dodgers uh, next week at City Field. And once they get beyond that series, uh, the rest of their schedule isn't very difficult. You know, there's a there's a pocket here and there of uh, tough teams, but for the most part, it's teams like the Pirates and the Nationals and the Marlins. Well, you look at the schedule. It starts with a four-game series against Colorado, and then the Dodgers, as you mentioned, for three. And then, uh, I mean, right now the Mets have the easiest schedule, I think, going forward for the remainder of the season. And the only thing that can beat the Mets, I would think, would be themselves. But Buck Showalter has been around a long time. He's going to tell his players, hey, don't look at the guys at the other team's record. Just worry about what we can do, and things will take care of themselves. I mean, he's smart enough to know that the only thing that you can do is trip up against weaker competition. Well, and, and that's just it. You know, theoretically, they have the easiest schedule, but all of a sudden, if you get a, a couple of injuries, key guys that are out, then it becomes a little bit tougher if you go into a slump uh, offensively. So, yeah, you still have to go out there and put on the field. And you're right, Buck Showalter has been through enough of these horse races to know the drill. They play Atlanta in late September. Uh, I don't know if that three-game series is going to matter at that point uh, in terms of the division because I think the Mets will have the division locked up by then, if not before then. If you were looking for a weak spot right now in the Mets, I'm going to offer the bullpen in front of Edwin Diaz. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I think that would be accurate. That's that's certainly their biggest concern right now is um, the quantity of guys because you have Adam Adovino who's done a good job. You have Seth Lugo. But when you take those two guys out of play uh, on days they can't pitch, there's a little, there's a little bit of concern there whether you're going to get something out of a, a Joely Rodriguez and then they've been uh, shuffling younger guys in and out of key spots. So, I think a big thing for them in these next couple of weeks is uh, some guys that might be getting healthy that could help them in that bullpen. One of them is Drew Smith, who pitched uh, pretty well for them before he had a lat strain. Another guy is uh, Tyler McGill, who was in the rotation. They are now uh, going to have him use him as a reliever when he comes back from the injured list. And they have a lefty, Joey Lucchese, who's coming back from Tommy John surgery, just began a rehab. So those are three arms they are going to take a long look at here and see if they can fit into that bullpen somehow. He's Mike Puma, the New York Post, covering the Mets. The one thing they're not lacking is bats. McNeil is third in the National League in hitting at 321. Uh, Alonzo has uh, got 102 RBIs. That's second in the league in home runs with 30 and first in RBI. Uh, Lindor, Marte, Vogelback seems to be the... Um, the folk hero. When he comes up, everybody seems to get a little bit more jacked up than the rest of the guys in the lineup. Why? Why is that? Uh, the fans love him. He's a rotund guy. Doesn't uh, I mean, you look at him, he doesn't look like he belongs in a baseball uniform. It's kind of like the Bartolo Colon effect that was here a few years ago when he pitched. But uh, back for, for a big guy, I tell you what, he, he moves decently on the bases uh, and he can hit but he's, he's a DH. There's not really a spot to put him on the field, but the fans have taken to him. They, they, it's, uh, it's exciting, especially with, 
uh, fans love watching him run the bases. I look at that guy, and you know, I'm old enough to remember the little lad in the comic strips. There was a guy named um, what was his name again? Um, oh, I forget. But he's a big that guy. Hum- yeah, I don't remember a little after. That might be a little before me. Yeah, I think it was a character called Humphrey Pennyworth, who was a big, who was a big guy. And every time I see Vogelback, it reminds me of my youth. Uh, when I see in in sport, it always happens in sports that when a player fails, everybody brings up the contract. Well, Francisco Lindor, you can bring up his contract: twenty-one home runs, eighty-four RBI. He's having a heck of a year, and he's just one of those guys that when he comes to plate, you know he's going to do something. Somebody asked me just yesterday who I thought the MVP of the Mets was, and uh, I gave it some thought, and I, I think it's Francisco Lindor. I think he's been among, maybe the most consistent of the Mets hitters this year. He goes out and plays every day, does a good job defensively, playing a demanding position. He's hitting for power. Uh, he's getting on base. So if, if I had to pick a Mets MVP, it's, it's Francisco Lindor. Starling Marte, guy that once upon a time played for the Pirates. He's ninth in the league in hitting at 295. I don't know if he gets enough notice or enough credit, but I'm watching him in the Braves, uh, in the Yankees, a Subway Series. He had a couple of key hits. They didn't turn out into victories, but he just looks like a guy that every time he comes to plate, uh, it looks like something is going to happen. The same with McNeil, the same with Alonzo, the same with Lindor. They just got a lot of guys. There's no holes in this lineup, I don't think. The only hole offensively in the lineup would be a catcher where they haven't received a heck of a lot of uh, offensive production unless you uh, put in there that Tomas Nito leads the league and sacrifice bunts. But uh, no, you're right about the rest of that lineup. And Marte, you mentioned... He's a guy you appreciate more just watching every day because there's, there's, there's stuff that doesn't pop up uh, in the box score in the statistics. You, you might make a strong throw that holds a runner at third base. He might make uh, playing the outfield a base running decision. He is just a fun player to watch. Well, the Braves, uh, who are only a game and a half out, two in the loss column, they got a three-game set coming up with St. Louis, which can hurt people. I mean, how about Albert Pujols? Doesn't he know he's 38, 39, whatever he is? I think he's 41. Is yeah. He 41, 42. <laughs> he's over 40. I know that. He's amazing. I mean, who would have forecast that he'd be still pounding it over the fence now? He is he's something else. And, you know, you see a lot of these farewell tours in sports, and a lot of them don't go so well, and they're – largely ceremonial, but you see what Pujols is doing here, and it, maybe, maybe you should reconsider and, and come back for another year. <laughs> no, I would agree. Uh, Mike, well, you look at the standings now. The Mets are in pretty good shape. They, I think only uh, only Houston has more wins than they do uh, with 79. The Braves have 78, game and a half back. The Phillies um, are nine and a half out. They're not going to win the division but they are certainly somebody to be aware of in terms of the wild card, particularly with Bryce Harper coming back maybe as soon as the next day or two. Well, that's the thing you have to look at when you talk about the Phillies is uh, they will be getting Bryce Harper back. Uh, the, Met, the Mets just saw the Phillies for 
a home and home. Uh, they were a tough opponent for the Mets. They have they get an amazing, you know, pretty amazing statistic I found was the Mets faced Zach Wheeler and Aaron Nola nine times this year, and the Mets won all nine of those games, hmm. which that's pretty good because you're, you're talking about two. Zach, you know, Zach Wheeler is a you're talking to Cy Young candidate usually, and Aaron Nola's was in the conversation a couple of years. You're talking about two uh, pretty good horses there, and, and for the Mets to go nine and zero against those two, that's a that's a pretty good statistic. Hey, Mike, I know you don't cover the Yankees, but you got a chance to see them uh, against the Mets. Uh, an old friend of mine, you might have heard of him, Dale Murphy. Uh, yeah. yeah, Murph, uh, I talked to him pretty regularly, and I said to him, well, you know, tell me about the Yankees. This is when they were going through the struggle that they're currently in. I mean, they were on pace before all of this, before July, for the All-Star break. They were on pace to win 113 games. That's probably not going to happen now. But Murphy made an interesting statement. When you look at the Yankees, the first thing you think about is home runs. The second thing you think about is strikeouts. So it's either feast or famine. It's interesting coming from a guy who, by the way, should be in the Hall of Fame. The more, the more I look at Dale Murphy's numbers, the more I agree with you, Howard. Um, yeah, as far as the Yankees goes, I, I just saw him for a couple games here against the Mets. I heard a judge. Boy, he, he looks like he's, he's back on track again after getting a little uh, drop off in home runs. They're in, you know, everything's relative. I'm talking about guys hit 47 of them this year, but. Uh, I look at that Yankee team. I, I think the biggest concern it, it, it's it's kind of like the Mets with the bullpen. I think they're they're trying to put it together on the run a little bit, and uh, they went into a offensive drought, which happens time to time with teams that, especially teams that uh, bank on the home run. But listen, after seeing them for a couple of days here, uh, they, they they look legit. So uh, and. They're going to, you know, barring something crazy, they're going to win that division. So uh, they're in good shape. Well, it's their first three-game win streak they've had since July 28th through the 30th. Uh, and and the, the guy that I'm intrigued with is Ben Attendee. Uh, when they acquired him, he got off to a sluggish start, but he's now starting to hit. I've had this one question about the Yankees. Why did they not try to trade Aaron Hicks before the deadline? And the reason why I say that is that I think this is more than just physical. I think this is metal. He's in a terrible slump. Yeah, and I, it'll be interesting to see what, what, what happens with him here going forward, but it, it doesn't seem like he, he's got a future with the Yankees, uh, given some of the moves they've made here. Well, that, plus uh, you got Josh Donaldson, who's in a, admired in a 6-for-44 slump. But we talked before about the Mets bullpen. Who's the closer for the Yankees that can actually get the job done? Right. Then that's what we're talking about. They're trying to put it together on the fly here. I, you know, I think ideally they would, they would love to see Chapman come back in the form, but uh, at this point, who knows if that's going to happen. Hey, Mike, before I let you go, let's look to the end of the season. Uh, I think, obviously, the New Yorkers would like to see a Mets-Yankees World Series. That's going to be tough because the Dodgers are playing great baseball. Houston's playing great baseball, uh, and, I, and I have to believe that the World Series winners are going to come from either the Mets, the Dodgers, the Astros, and maybe the Braves I'll throw into the equation. You got anybody else to throw into that mix? Did you, did you say the Yankees? 
Yeah, the Yankees, the Mets, yeah. the Dodgers, the Astros, and maybe the Braves. I, I would agree with you. There's only it's probably those uh, five teams: three in the National League, two in the American League. I think that's the pool you're talking about. I think the World Series matchup will come out of that. Those five teams, and I think the uh, and obviously the winner will come out of that. Let's just say the Mets are in the World Series. Who would you love to see them play outside of the Yankees? Um, who would I love to see them play outside the Yankees we're talking about? Well, let's talk about the NLCS first. NLCS, it, it, Mets-Dodgers is a series I think everybody wants to see. Uh-huh. And that's why I think next week, is, uh, next week will be fun because it could be a preview of that. Um, World Series... Outside the Yankees, there's no real matchup that really does a lot for you know Mets Astros. There's some history there because '86 when they met in the NLCS. <clears throat> but um, you know, outside the Yankees, I can't think of that one uh, realistic matchup that that really does it for me. How about Scherzer against Verlander in Game One? That would be fun. <laughs> DeGrom or Scherzer in game one against Berlander, sure. Yeah. Mike, appreciate your time, uh, and most importantly, you stay safe. Okay, thank you, Howard. He's Mike Puma of the New York Post. Does a great job covering that team. The Yankees, I got to say this, I, I watch the Yankees and I scratch my head uh, look, they went through that terrible slump. Um, they go 9-20 and 20 since the All-Star break before the Subway Series. Um, they had a win over Toronto, then the two victories over the Mets. I don't know. I, I, I think this Yankees team has got a lot of positives. Obviously, Aaron Judge, right now the American League's most valuable player. Uh, is he going to eclipse 60 home runs? Who knows? But right now he's on pace to pass Roger Maris, which will be kind of interesting, who had 61 home runs in 1961. But as for the Yankees, I mean, Stanton's due back, uh, could be back tonight. They need his bat, no question. They begin a four-game series uh, at Oakland. uh, And then the, the schedule is much harder than the Mets, no question about it. So where are they going to need a push? They're going to need the push with the bullpen, as I mentioned. And then beginning in September, September 2nd, they're at Tampa Bay before returning home to play Milwaukee, which is going to be tough, and then Tampa Bay again. So there's nine or ten games that are going to be very difficult for the Yankees. And then September the 9th is going to be an interesting day. They're going to pay tribute to Derek Jeter and his Hall of Fame uh, tribute, which should be great. Look, and, I, and I'll go back to, I mean, I'll go back to, let me see, the Yankees still have to play Boston six times, Milwaukee three times, and uh, the schedule gets increasingly more difficult. The thing I still can't figure out, and I'm sure the Yankees have a good explanation for it, why'd they trade Jordan Montgomery? That, to me, they traded him at the deadline I'm still not questioning it. Joey Gallo had to move, and he's been reborn with the Dodgers. Good for him. Frankie Montrose, uh, three dud performances and then a win. But I still come back to Aaron Hicks. Look, this is nothing personal. I don't know Aaron Hicks. 
I would just say this. He's having trouble at the plate. No question about it. And after a while, your troubles at the plate start to take over where he's exceptional, and that's in the field. But it gets to a point where Aaron, uh, when Aaron Boone's got no choice, he's got to put him down because he's an automatic out. I mean, I'll watch him come up, bases loaded, and two out, and I'm thinking to myself, this at-bat's over. And sure enough, he strikes out. Uh, he's unsure. Uh, he seems to be, look, I remember when I played ball in high school. There were times when the bat wasn't working for me. So I spent more time at batting practice. Do I think that's Aaron Boone, uh, Aaron Hicks's uh, solution? I, I don't know, but I do know this. The guy is too athletic to continue to struggle like he is struggling. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, it, it, it makes me scratch my head. Quick note, and we're going to have uh, Craig Bolajak on momentarily with the Utah Jazz, their television voice. This trade that the Knicks have been talking about for Donovan Mitchell, when and where? When is this going to happen? I mean, at some point, is it Utah that's holding it up? Is Danny Ainge out thinking? Um, Mr. Rose, I, I really don't have the answer to that. I do know this. This is not healthy. So when you get right down to it, you just wonder... At some point, hey, Craig. Hey, Howard. How are you, pal? I'm very good. Thank you. He's Craig Bolajak, the television voice of the Utah Jazz. Uh, I know you've probably been peppered with questions about the Rudy Gobert. Since before the Rudy Gobert trade, it looked like, uh, and give me a good term to define what it is that Utah is doing and what are they trying, what's the end game here? Well, I think the end game, Howard, obviously, with Danny Ainge uh, making these decisions is a win a championship. But what's the time frame? You know, and the one thing really that I don't know, honestly, is what the the plan truly is. I don't think anybody in, in the jazz world, except a couple of the executives like owner Ryan Smith and Danny Ainge and, and GM Justin Sanic know what the, the end game is. But... I think fans are a little restless as camp is just a few weeks away. In fact, you know, in five weeks' time, we'll be up in um, Edmonton, Ontario, Canada for a, our first preseason game against Toronto. And honestly, I mean, Howard, I don't even have a roster to work with yet. And, you know, per reports this morning, it looks like Patrick Beverly, who the Jazz uh, got in the Rudy Bear trade with Minnesota, uh, is on his way to Los Angeles to, uh, for the, to play for the Lakers. And so, you know, it's an ongoing uh, situation. And, you know, Danny Ainge retooled the Boston Celtics, and you know where they are at this moment. And he did it with draft picks. He rolled the dice and hit uh, with Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and also mixed in uh, complimentary players. And I think that's just the plan. If I could just map out probably how you build a building i think danny's going back to his blueprints and what he did in boston so you know for all of us in the west uh we're just kind of waiting uh to see what the outcome is and what kind of roster the jazz you know actually put on the floor 
uh, by the time we hit uh, hit the road for that first preseason game. Conley's still on the roster. Boyan Bogdanovich, uh, Jordan Clarkson, those were key parts in the Jazz success the last couple of seasons. So uh, I'm anxious to see how this plays out. You mentioned the Randy Beverly trade. Apparently it's for Talon Horn, uh, Horn and Tucker and Stanley Johnson. Um, I don't know how that fits the Utah Jazz. Look, somebody used a term to me that I I'm not in a position to say yes or no. Uh, it looks like uh, Utah's dumping salaries. Uh, is, is that unfair? Um, you know, I don't know if it's really a salary dump. I, I think the fact is that they want to have the room to move with a, a younger, more dynamic uh, group. Look, I think, Howard, as you know, the league is, is changing from, you know, uh, ever, ever changing from, you know, three-point shooters, but also the Danny Ainge philosophy, from what I can gather, is, and what, it, what I can see what he did in Boston was he wants defenders first, and he wants guys in the 6'6 range and above. So what happens is when you look at the Mike Conleys and the Donovan Mitchells, talented, yes, but from really a different era, uh, Donovan's explosive. Mike is just that uh, perennial point guard who directs traffic, who has improved his three-point game. But you can't you can't lie about height. And Mike's at six footer, and Donovan is six one, and it really kind of put the Jazz, uh, in my opinion, kind of pigeonhole them at times, especially postseason play, Howard, when bigger teams got a little more defensive and a more physical, and it really did, uh, I think. Uh, bear witness to some of the struggles of the Jazz in the backcourt. But again, it goes back to where the league's going. You've got to play D. You have to be in that six 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 seven range. Wing defenders are at a premium if you can find them. And I think Danny may think basically with the draft picks he got from, from Rudy Gobert's trade and also what he may get, again, I've got to say per reports because I work for the Jazz, uh, that you know the, Donna, if Don, the Donovan Mitchell trade actually goes down there's more draft picks coming so it's i think danny found himself howard without picks he found himself with no room to maneuver unless you trade your two stars and i think they felt like they had run that show as far as they could they knew they were a good team but only a mid-level postseason club and i think when they explained that to quinn snyder he decided uh, to make his exit, and he, as he said to me, you know, it's time for a new voice. Great respect for Quinn. He's going to land on his feet and do just fine in the future. Yeah, I, I completely agree. He's Craig Bolajak, the television voice of the Jazz. couple things. Uh, Randy Beverly, an outstanding defensive player. That's the good news. The bad news is he's 34, and I don't think he's played 60 games in the last four or five seasons. So maybe that was part of the decision. Uh, as for Donovan Mitchell... We have heard, and I live in the New York area, we've heard for a month that Donovan Mitchell is going to wind up being with the Knicks. Who's going to go? Uh, is R.J. Barrett part of this trade? Uh, the draft picks, and the Knicks have, I think, five number ones they've, they've accumulated. So now a Cleveland's in the mix. I mean, I don't, I don't know how this thing is going to all shake out, but it's interesting because I think Leon Rose is sitting on the hot seat in New York. Well, for all reports, I see yes, because Donovan is a New Yorker. His mom works there. His dad's with the Mets. Uh, he'd be playing in front of family, friends. I get that. Um, you know, I, Howard, I think as time goes on, 
you know, the pressure cooker on both sides start to kind of sizzle a little bit more because I think New York obviously has Donovan's connection there and all the people who believe he may be the game changer for the next decade, uh, and they can build around him. But, you know, again, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, injuries, height, uh, can he stay explosive, and who do they put around him? Uh, and really, he wasn't a defensive-minded guy. He was more or less in the Quinn Snyder system, the go-to offensive scorer and a penetrator who was able to jump and leap his way to the, to the rim and also step back and hit threes. He had really, uh, over the first couple of years of his career, uh, dialed in from three. I think a lot of help from Conley and also Ricky Rubio when uh, Donovan was a, <clears throat> was a rookie with the Jazz. The outcome, I think, is that they wait, they play a waiting game is what it sounds like to me. And what that means is who's going to blink or, or, you know, flinch first right. because camps are going to open and the pressure in New York is to make some deal from what I understand is pretty hot. The Jazz are very quiet on their end here in Salt Lake uh, about what they're going to do. And Danny hasn't made any, uh, any mentions uh, publicly. And Donovan, to his credit, uh, has been very quiet not to, you know, ruffle feathers, uh, you know, and if hey, it's like this, Howard, KD did a lot of talking and, you know, he wasn't going to play. He wanted Nash out and now he's decided to come back. And I think you have to always be careful if things don't work out, you know, do the jazz reel Donovan Mitchell back in and move forward. And, you know, there's a possibility there. Uh, I think you have to be realistic about it. But at the same time, Ainge is is a guy who is well known around the league to make some incredible deals. I think he's patient enough to wait, which obviously we've we've watched that happen over the last two months. And boy, the clock is ticking. And it, every day that passes without some sort of movement, it just I think brings the the anticipation even higher. But in reality, you know, he wants a lot for Donovan. He got a, a, a boatload for Rudy Gobert, three-time Defensive Player of the Year for Minnesota. So I think again, does. Do, do the Knicks know they have to match that? Do they do it with players, filler players? I, I don't know. And, and you know what? That's a, another pay grade above what I do. And, <laughs> and it's a it's an interesting scenario. You know, I never thought this would happen for my chair. I always like to say, I'm not speaking for the Jazz, but for me, <clears throat> I really thought the Jazz would try to run this another year or two after signing both to max contracts, Mitchell and Gobert. Right. But... I, I guess, again, with new eyes on the franchise, and that, I mean Danny Ainge and talking to Ryan Smith, the, I think they gave it a two-year run, and they knew that, you know, Howard, 18, 19, 20 months ago during COVID and in the bubble, the Jazz were 52-20 and 20 in that truncated season. And, you know, there was a lot of thought that this was going to be a dominating team, but there are dominating players in this league, and especially in the West. Chris Paul continues to you know, defy age and, you know, teaming up with Booker, you get uh, Jamal Murray back in Denver and you still have a guy named LeBron out in Los Angeles and you got a guy named Luca in Dallas. So maybe that, maybe that was part of the equation and some of the decisions uh, that are going on right now with the franchise. Television voice of the jazz, Craig Bolajak joining yours truly, Howard David. Look, Horton Tucker is only 21 years old. Uh, there was a lot of hope in Los Angeles that he was going to be uh, a significant piece. Uh, I, I guess they, they value Randy Beverly that much to give up on him. But 
by the same token, look, when I was doing the Celtics, I was around Danny Ainge a lot. He's the guy that you do not want to sit across the table from in the game of Liars Poker because he, he's going he's gonna to outthink you. Trust me. He's a very smart guy, knows this league inside and out, and I'm just wondering if he's holding out to make sure that R.J. Barrett is part of this deal. What do you think about Barrett? How does he fit the Jazz? Well, you know, again, Howard, the reports are intriguing for me because, again, I just sit back and, and try to and, you know embrace this because I've got to get ready for a preseason and a regular season game of 82. I think the Jazz get on TNT just one time this year. Uh, unless something miraculous happens with his franchise and, and TNT makes moves and puts them on more. But that's an oddity for the Jazz of late. One one appearance on national television and a couple of appearances on on, D, on NBA TV. So we got a lot of work ahead. Um, look, youth is going to be important, and I think defense will be the key. Also, the Jazz obviously want to find that particular player that can either play the point and be that starter or be – uh, a reliable second string, you know, uh, guy who can lead this, the second unit off the bench. So one reason why, you know, you trade 13 years of, of experience, but, you know, youth usually wins out. And so the Lakers are trying to do what they can with veterans, in my opinion, to continue to feed this hope of LeBron and another championship. But, you know, speaking of the Lakers, I mean, it's really all about health. I mean, to can, you know, Anthony Davis stay healthy and, and really at his age and I'm speaking of LeBron now gosh you see what happened to Kobe and KD I mean you know those are miles and miles and minutes and minutes on those legs Achilles and ankles and you just wonder I mean I'm hoping for LeBron to finish his career you know in, in the way that I think he's trying to design it but at the same time you got to be real I just don't know if the Lakers can mount another title run with the aging veterans that we continue to see year after year. As for the Jazz, uh, youth defense, and they have a new coach, and Will Hardy, who I got to know a little bit in uh, summer league when he was with San Antonio. So he comes from the pop, you know, the pop coaching tree, and he's a young guy, and the Jazz have given him, I think, will give him all the opportunities to find success. So it's going to be, you know, it won't happen overnight, but I think Danny Ainge hopes that he can make this happen and build quicker than most franchises are able to do. Uh, well, again, does R.J. Barrett fit the Jazz? What do you think? Yeah, I think I think so. I think uh, I think that's what they're trying to get is uh, perimeter defenders, uh, you know, youth, someone that they can develop and continue to watch him grow. Uh, you know, Danny's got his plan, which I'm not privy to, but I all the names that are involved and whoever. If this deal it doesn't work, and the reports indicate, you know, there's been stalemates and there's been movement lately, um, I think it depends again on the draft picks and one or two players that Danny Ainge wants to see in a Jazz uniform. So, whether or not the Knicks want to give up all that and put all their you know, all their money and all their future into one player and Donovan Mitchell to build around, I understand, but that also limits them. Howard, as you know, the Lakers don't have a lot of picks if any and and this would really i think pigeonhole new york to make this move would be for a long-term success but also there's very future picks that they can if any in the first round what they've got six and they want and danny wants five so it would be interesting to see how this works out but you make a great point 
Danny Ainge was one tough college basketball player. He was a one, I mean, look, he was a two-sport pro, right? Baseball, and then decided to make his run with, with Boston. Right. And he won a title as a player. He's won a title as an exec. And you made it, and you're spot on. Everyone in this league knows the toughness of Ainge, uh, the way that he operates as a, as a general manager. He's COO of uh, Jazz Basketball. So, look, they got him for a reason. Uh, he's got roots in Utah, yes. He played at Brigham Young University just down the road uh, from Salt Lake. But, you know, he's, a, he's an experienced player. He's an experienced executive. And you know what? He's playing the game as the and almost like he's playing the game, right, Howard, on the yeah. floor. But now he's he's translated it into the front office. It's really amazing. You mentioned the Lakers. Uh, look, and, and if the trade goes through, and Randy Beverly's part of the Lakers, you got LeBron who just extended for two years. You got Anthony Davis, and his his injuries are well documented. But aside from that, uh, I mean, Beverly comes with an expiring thirteen million dollar contract. Except right. for that. The Lakers have plenty of cap room. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the money they handed out to, to, to LeBron, I wasn't surprised, and AD. So they still, you know, put trust in LeBron. And, you know, Howard, the Lakers are so intriguing to me. I mean, we see them. And in Salt Lake, there's a lot of Laker fans. There's a lot of yellow and a lot of purple uh, when they come to town. And, uh, you know, with LeBron on a roster, you never say never, and I, that's how much respect I have for the guy. Uh, and you know, his his end game is obviously, as you know, is to play with his son Bron, Bronny. Right? How that works out, I don't know. I don't know if the Lakers would draft him. I don't know if he goes home to Cleveland. It's really a great story to see, you know, LeBron trying to stay in this league. And look, he still is proving his worth, right? And the Lakers obviously know his worth at the box office and, and his ability to lead a team. But for him to stay into his, what, 39th or 40th birthday and play in this league with his son would be an incredible feat. But where that happens, who knows? But, you know, I think the Lakers can still move pieces and, and you know, still grab and spend money for uh, uh, free agents, but they've got plenty right now. And I think, you know, they don't have a youth movement. And I think they're just going to try to make a run with LeBron as yep. far as they can. And then they're going to be forced to Howard just to rebuild. I mean, but they always have the ability of the Lakers and the Celtics. And even in New York, it hasn't worked, as you know, for many, many years. But just the city alone and the reputation and the history of those franchises is a landing spot, a landing zone for so many uh, mid-career uh, veterans. I guess is the best way to put it. So they think they're going to go to L.A., wear the purple and gold, and they have a chance to win a championship. And with the right mix, a lot of teams have that ability. I think the Jazz are just using the opposite way, building through the draft, rebuilding through the draft with with particular players that fit uh, the, the sense of Danny Ainge's defensive-minded first uh, way to play this game in this league. So uh, I'm anxious, again, like I said, to see where this goes. And I would guess it's got to break one way or the other in the next week or two because the Jazz hit open court in the next couple, right after Labor Day and then camp opens and that may put a lot of pressure on both sides to get something done. He's Craig Bolajak, the TV voice of the Utah Jazz. I'll say this about the Knicks. They're desperate and it's proven when they went out and signed Jalen Brunson uh, to a free, to a, a, a $100 million deal, usually reserved 
for superstars and all-star players, neither of which is Jalen Brunson. He's a really good player. He yeah. could develop into an all-star, but they're still faced with the possibility uh, of some action from the league uh, about maybe a little bit of conspiring to get him because his dad's now an assistant. His agent is uh, Leon Rose's son. Leon Rose was his agent. So they're desperate. And what I mean by that is they'll do what they have to do if they think that Donovan Mitchell can take them to that next level and it costs them R.J. Barrett, they'll do it. That's how desperate yeah. they are. And to be further, to go further, Craig, I'm not sure they can, that Julius Randle is going to be a Nick come the first game of the season. I still think that Brunson has to have the ball. So does Julius Randle. Something's got to give. Well, and so does Donovan Mitchell, if, if we're really kind of breaking it all down. I mean, that's what he does. He's a 27, 26 and a half point per night guy. And Brunson, I got to be honest, he destroyed the Jazz. Mm. Uh, and just his defensive uh, abilities and also the way he's able to score. Uh, I was amazed for his size. He reminds me a little bit of how he protects the ball and finds his way into the paint and uses the defender to help him become a better offensive player like a Chris Paul. Paul's a master at that, as you know. And so Brunson was a tough take for the Jazz. He was a more powerful player, and he just seemed to have an edge uh, that he was able to uh, really dominate Donovan and also dominate Mike Conley during the, the playoff series. So, uh, you know, he, I, your, your point's well taken. Is he, uh, is he a level in the East that he can, that he can become an all-star? I think he's a, a really fine player, but it's yet to be seen how he's used, right, in every scenario and, how, and, and who, who they surround him with. And um, But, you know, I tell you, this league is offensive. Uh, everyone wants the ball, but who wants to play defense at the same time? Boston has that ability to kind of do both. And, uh, and again, from what I understand and, you know, knowing what Ainge built in Boston, I think that's what you're going to see the Jazz ultimately be uh, is a better defensive team with maybe a little more edge when it when it's all said and done. Um, edgy, not not being you know going out and doing flagrant twos, but just being a more physical team uh, with a little more of an attitude to it. I would just um, ask you this. Uh, there were re reports that Gobert and Mitchell were at odds during the end of the season last year. I don't at this point I don't care about that. What yep. was the reaction, the fan reaction, when Gobert was traded? Well, look, there there were many, many, many Gobert fans. Rudy did a lot of great things in secret uh, with the community and helped a lot of people. Um, Gobert, more soft spoken but one of the hardest workers I've ever covered in the NBA. And that's talking Malone and Stockton. Uh, Rudy did more with less, Howard. Uh, and I think, again, gets maligned sometimes in this league because of his skill set is, you know, basically uh, he, he, he hasn't been able to offensively develop a hook shot or face the basket and knock down a, a, an eight, six-foot jump shot. I've watched him practice for years, and he does it all the time. But how does that translate into games? That's what all his coaches say. Yeah, you can do it in practice, but can you do it in games? But still, to your point, to your question, he was much beloved uh, by Jazz fans, Jazz Nation. Um, and uh, it was a tough day 
uh, when he left. He wanted to stay. He wanted to finish his career here by all reports. And, you know, he gave the Jazz such a dynamic um, force in the middle, but yet also at times he would become frustrated when the ball was delivered. Turnovers would happen because the ball had to be placed perfectly at the rim for him to finish. And when the ball wasn't, uh, then the ball would be turned over and the Jazz would get beaten down the floor in transition and what would be a 17-point lead. We saw multiple times last year, Howard, the Jazz just couldn't hold leads. And if the three ball wasn't on and you couldn't get the ball to the rim and they forced Rudy away from the paint, then the ball would turn over and 17-point leads would be whittled down quickly to, to six and four. And the Jazz many times would lose those games in the fourth quarter. So uh, I think all those things that we're discussing became a part of, of Danny's decision to make a move. Plus he's 30, going into his 10th year. And a lot of times, and the history of the league will tell you, you know, bigs begin to break down. And you just wonder, you know, how many more years Rudy actually had has. But I think he's in a good situation in Minnesota. I'm excited to see him how, play and how he fits with Carl Anthony Towns. And they could be dangerous. I mean, that's that's a big lineup. And, I'm ex- and I think in the West, uh, he, he, he will be motivated. He plays with a chip on his shoulder. He wears 27 for a reason. That was his draft number taken by Denver who the Jazz then traded for. And and Rudy works his tail off physically to become stronger every summer. But the sad part is his offensive game outside of the rim just has not been developed. And, um, you know, again, those are things that some players have the ability to do and others don't. And uh, taking nothing, nothing away from Gobert, he's led the league in what, field goal percentage the last two or three seasons, 71. But it's all at the rim. And, uh, but his defensive abilities has made the Jazz into what they were. And now they're going to have to re- reset because Gobert's not there. All right, so you've been goofing off all summer. Did you at least work in your golf game? <laughs> Very little. You know, <laughs> honestly, I, I I just really took it easy, took a breath. I've been on the course a few times, uh, been in the pool just to swim some laps, started to go back to the gym, Howard. You know, I still have a little paranoia after my night in Oklahoma City on March 11 uh, of during COVID. And it's just, I just try to, you know, I, I guess I'm, it's drilled in my mind just to keep your distance, keep your distance. But, you know, sooner or later, you kind of move back into your uh, normal way of doing things. But I'm not sure if we ever get back to normal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. I'm interested to see how this season goes. I'm hoping that uh, with vaccinations and people who have gotten COVID that there is some sort of, defense mechanism i'd hate to see the league have to you know draw back or you know players miss games again or you know there's stoppage but i i'm hoping we get 82 in and uh everybody stays healthy that's the biggest key well get ready for the season craig i, I know you are and, and keep up the great work thanks again for your time and you stay safe thank you howard appreciate your time talk soon he's craig bolajack the television voice of the utah jazz I'm surprised that Quinn Snyder walked away, but I guess he had his reasons. And I'm surprised he hasn't been hired by another team. The guy's a hell of a coach. He really is. A postscript. A friend of mine passed away just a short time ago. His name is Pete Carrillo. He was the head basketball coach at Princeton for over 30 years. 
He was a winner. He was an innovator. And he's the smartest individual that I have ever been around. I'm going, they're going to have a, a, a celebration for Pete at the end of September at Jadwin Gym where Princeton plays their basketball games. I started my career doing Princeton basketball and football, but being about Pete Carrell, that was interesting, to say the least. Every time you thought he was going up against a team that he couldn't beat, he beat him. Case in point, 1972, North Carolina comes into Jadwin Gym, second-ranked team in the nation. Okay, great team. Dean Smith, Hall of Fame coach. Bob McAdoo, superstar on that team. Princeton not only beat them, they beat them by 14. And after the game, Dean Smith said, that is the best coach team that I have ever gone up against. That would not be the only time I would hear that. A couple of years later, Notre Dame, second ranked in the nation, came into Princeton. Digger Phelps came in looking suave. Three-piece suit, vest, flower in the lapel. Then Pete Carroll comes walking out. Pants are wrinkled, shirts wrinkled, bow tie is disheveled, hair's a mess. And he outcoached Digger Phelps. Beat him by 12. They had Adrian Dantley. Led the nation in scoring before when he came into Princeton. Mickey Stoyer did a great job defending Adrian Dantley. Held him to 12 points. He was averaging 28. And in 1974, Princeton went into the NIT against teams that were ranked. This is when the NIT was a very big tournament. They played Holy Cross in the first game. They beat them. They played South Carolina in the second game. And they beat them. And after the game, Frank McGuire, then the coach at South Carolina, said, I don't ever want to play that team again. That would be profound. Game three, Oregon. Ronnie Lee and that whole cast of characters. Princeton beat him. And then Providence came in and Princeton beat him and won the NIT, 1975. After the press conference, or at the press conference, Pete Carroll said they were the only amateur team in the tournament. Made a few people open up their eyes. He said the other team spent more money on their media guides than I spend on recruiting. Think about it. He beat some ranked teams, top 20 teams. Later on that year, or I should say the next year, oh, I take it back early on. I got my, my calendar a little screwed up. Princeton played in the South Carolina tournament, and Princeton beat South Carolina, and Frank McGuire said, I don't ever want to play that team again. Then they come into the NIT, and I see Frank McGuire at the press conference, and as a coach, you said, you don't ever want to play that Princeton team again. I said, if you win game one and they win game one, you're going to play them in game two. He said, remember what I told you. Princeton beat them apart. Took them apart. I went down to look for Coach McGuire and I said, I remember what you said. So obviously you're a prophet. He says, oh, yeah, I didn't want to be this kind of prophet. But he said, you're right. That team is so well coached. Carell mastered the back door. Constant ball movement. A lot of passing. People said they were stalling to keep the score down. That year, Princeton averaged 75 points a game. There was no stalling. It was just smart basketball with smart players on the court. 
And Pete Carroll is the smartest man I ever met. Smartest individual I've ever met. He could do the Sunday Times crossword puzzle in an hour and a half in ink. He was a poetry major. Poetry major at Lafayette. Think about it. A basketball coach was a poetry major. And his favorite poem was A Rose is a Rose is a Rose, Edna St. Vincent Malay. I miss Pete because I talked to him about every other week in the last year or so to keep in touch. He died at the age of 92. Had a great life. Has two great kids. They'll be missed. He will be missed. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live, and you stay safe. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.